All right. Preschool through first graders. If you guys want to head toward Elevate, toward Children's Church, head toward Miss Courtney. She can get her spot. Oh, there's her spotlight. All right. Run toward the spotlight, guys. Hey, if you're a guest of ours and you have a pre-K through first grader and they would like to go to a children's church time during the sermon, they can do that. It's not required ever, but it's a great opportunity if they want to go that direction. So, And let's be honest, based on how many people were on stage earlier and how many kids are running that way, this would be a good time to volunteer to help in the preschool <laughs> if you're not already doing that. Or we may have to figure out how to build a bigger preschool and children's building, one of the two. So uh, that's, a good, that's a good problem to have. Hey, if you would, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. And as you open to Matthew chapter 12, I wanted to put a couple of other reminders in front of you just for a minute. So Matthew chapter 12, first book of the New Testament. We're going to jump into studying that here in just a moment. But I want to let you know that tonight at Emmaus is one of my favorite nights of the year where we come together at the end of the summer and celebrate the mission trips, the mission opportunities that have happened during the summer. So five o'clock tonight, over in the gym, the metal building in the back, over there, five o'clock, we're going to get together and hear testimonies of mission trips during the, uh, during the summer. Also, as if that's not good enough, we're going to eat homemade ice cream together. So if you make an amazing homemade ice cream, especially if it's Butterfinger or something like that. If you want to bring that, that would be really great. Uh, we're going to sit down. We're going to eat together. We're going to spend that time. Jim's put that, uh, Jim's put that service together for us tonight, and we're so thankful for how God works through our different mission teams, mission trips. Jim has been praying a prayer for the last year or so. God, take us to some harder spots. Get us in places where we as a church are really going to be stretched and where more people are going to get involved. And I can tell you that's happening. It's happening pretty quickly. Um, there's one opportunity, though, close to home that Jim's going to tell you about that's kind of come up last second for us. So Yeah, thanks. So and, uh, church family, wanted to let us know one of the things I'm always amazed at how our church family responds to different needs in our community and uh, we heard from our superintendent uh, this last week that there's a need for bus drivers in our community. And you're thinking, why in the world are we announcing for an opportunity for bus drivers at church? And I just want to share with you as a church family, uh, what a great way for us to be able to connect to our community, serve our community. So if you're looking for a way that you could serve, uh, this Wednesday at 11 o'clock, we're going to have an information meeting, a luncheon. Dr. Romine's transportation staff will be here just to share with you about that pathway of being able to, to get a uh, CDL license. And uh, uh, church family, I just want to ask you uh, to be praying for that need and to be let it, let it known among your employees, uh, maybe their spouses, others that are in your circle of influence that could help to meet this need uh, in our community. So look forward to us meeting this Wednesday at 11 o'clock for that opportunity. And just be praying for continued opportunities as we uh, look uh, at our neighbors and out uh, as uh, with open eyes as to how God can use us to share the gospel of Jesus, of Jesus Christ. Thanks. Yeah. Many of you know that the story of Emmaus is after the 2013 tornado and after the 2015 tornado, Emmaus was able to host a couple of more public school, elementary schools here in our building after those tornadoes. And so our connection with the school system, and Jim says serve, which is true, 
Uh, but I can think of no other service opportunity through the church that you're going to get paid for. This is not free service, so this is, you would be driving uh, four or more public schools with their, with their bus routes and other opportunities where they need bus drivers. So if you're looking for that way to connect with the community, but also maybe you just need a job, need to be able to step in and make some more income, assuming everything's good with background and you go through the certification, this is an opportunity for you to, to do that. So we want you to know, special meeting this Wednesday uh, to be able to do that. So I wanted to put that in front of you. All right, so this morning, we're going to be, as I said, at the end of Matthew chapter 12. And if you have not been with us up to this point, we're through going through a full study of the book of Matthew that, with best intentions, will end Easter 2020. And so you try to lay these sermons out. God, where are you going to take us week to week? I knew where we were going this week, as I was preparing, I forgot that it was going to be parent-child dedication day, and we were going to be celebrating the gift of family. This is one of those moments when you're just studying verse by verse through a book as a church on a Sunday morning, and you get to a passage, and it connects with something you're doing as a church, and you say, oh no, is this going to work? Is this going to be okay? It is, because this is where God has guided us, and I hope you'll hear my heart, you'll see where we're going with this, that this won't look like we're pushing aside what we did earlier, hopefully to bring clarity to what we did earlier through the parent-child dedication and what it means to be family, what it means to be a part of the family of God. There's some tough concepts here, but they're also, they bring so much freedom and so much direction for our lives as Christians. So we're going to start in verse 38. It's where we're going to start. And then we'll give a good bit of our attention to the very end of this chapter. Matthew chapter 12 Verse 38, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Now, the scribes and Pharisees up to this point have not had the greatest relationship with Jesus. In fact, we've already found out that some of the Pharisees are conspiring against Jesus. They're trying to destroy Jesus. And here, Jesus has done so many things up to this point in his ministry, the healing the teaching, the explanations. And he gets to this point, and the scribes and Pharisees say, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. What's been happening up to this point? It's like they're saying, that was not enough. What you've done up to this point is not enough for us to put our faith in you, to really believe that you are the Savior sent from God. We need to see more. We, we have to see ourselves in that question a little bit because we're all prone to say, God, I would believe in you. I would follow you. I would do that. I just haven't seen enough. I need to see more, and then I'll really believe. Then I'll really be committed. They're saying, we need to see a sign from you. And so how does Jesus reply? Verse 39, he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now, <laughs> every time I read that verse, I think that this is Jesus' example of the Bill Ingvall, here's your sign uh, moment. So uh, we want to see a sign from you, and Jesus says, here's your sign. In fact, actually, I'm going to tell you what your sign's going to be. Here's your sign of what this is going to look like. Why the harsh response, though? Why call them an evil and adulterous generation? Didn't they just ask him a question? Well, 
we know that this is not the first interaction they've had with Jesus. And part of Jesus' response has to do with the word seeks for. So an evil and adulterous generation seeks for. Seeks for doesn't really get at the core idea of that word. It's more of a demand. The scribes and the Pharisees are demanding that Jesus do something in particular to impress them. Then they will believe. And Jesus says, an evil and adulterous generation, a group of people who don't truly trust in God's power and God's work in the world, who don't really have faith, would demand something like this. This idea that no sign will be given to this generation except the sign of the prophet Jonah. So Jesus is saying, I'm going to give you a sign, but it's not going to be in the way that you expect. Let's stop for just a moment here. When we're talking about this idea of temptations that we face in our day, where people say, I would believe in God, or I would follow Jesus if he did X, or if he showed me this, or if he did this, we have to see in our own heart at that point, are those legitimate questions where we're really seeking after the Lord, or are we just saying, I'll come to God and I'll come to him on my own terms. If he meets me, in the way that I think he should, then I'll have faith, but if he doesn't, I won't have faith. There's a difference between a legitimate seeking after the Lord, really wanting to know if this is true, wanting to know what it looks like to believe in him, and a demand that, God, you'll have to meet my requests, or otherwise I'm not going to believe. There's a very different thing going on there. Here Jesus says, I'll give you the sign of the prophet Jonah. What's that sign going to look like? Well, look at the next verse. Verse 40, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Do you see what Jesus has done here? For his original audience, he has given them a sign, but it's a sign that will not come immediately. It will come at his resurrection. And so Jesus is saying, you're going to receive a sign that is going to show you that I am the Son of God, that I'm the Savior of the world, that I've come as a messenger of God. You're going to get a sign, but in some sense, it's going to come almost too late. You're going to see at the resurrection, you're going to see with the resurrection that I really was the Son of God. But the key is, for Matthew's readers of the gospel, for Matthew's audience that received the gospel, they would be able to look back to the resurrection. And through the resurrection, they would be able to see that, yes, Jesus is the Son of God. Yes, he really is the Savior of the world. One way that this can be helpful is if you are struggling with the idea of, do I really believe in God? Am I really committed to the way of Jesus? Is this thing really real? I would tell you, 99 out of 100 times to start with the resurrection. Because so many places in scripture, when it comes back around to, is Jesus who he said he was really going to be? Is this really true? It comes back around to this idea of the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, if the resurrection is true, it changes everything. If the resurrection is not true, we have completely and totally wasted our time this morning. It comes back around to this idea of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so if you find yourself struggling with faith, if you find yourself uncertain about what it looks like to follow Jesus, 
I would tell you to come back to this idea of the resurrection. Do I believe this is true? And if I do, what does this change? What does this mean for my life? And what does it mean for the world? And so Jesus says, you're going to get a sign. And it's going to be the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now here's the flip side of this. Look at 41. Because this is a sign of salvation, but it's also a sign of judgment. Verse 41. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn this generation, this generation that did not believe. For they, speaking of the men of Nineveh, the men of Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus is telling these people, these scribes and Pharisees, if you do not believe in me, the one who has come as the prophet, as the Savior, greater than Jonah ever could be. If you don't believe in me, your judgment will be truly great. Because here's this Gentile nation, here's this wicked people, the Ninevites, and Jonah came to them, as weak as he was as a prophet, he came to them out of the grave, out of the fish, spoke to them, and they repented. And now I've come, the Son of God, and I'm speaking to you, and you refuse to repent. It's a dangerous place to be, to see the work of God, to encounter the resurrection of Jesus, and to refuse to believe. And it's very important here that you have Gentiles, non-Jews, people of the nations repenting, but the Jewish Pharisees and scribes are the ones refusing to repent. Same idea in 42. You kind of get the same idea, just shaped a little bit differently in 42. Verse 42, the queen of the south, the queen of Sheba, will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Again, you have a non-Jew, this woman, this queen of Sheba, the queen of the south, who is going out of her way to seek godly wisdom because she hears about Solomon. And Jesus says, if she did that, seeking after godly wisdom through Solomon, and now I am divine wisdom, and I've come to you. You didn't even have to travel to me. I came to you to bring this wisdom, and you reject me? That's a dangerous thing. So what's happening in 38 through 42? I just threw up a quick summary slide so you get an idea. This first section, 38 to 42, what's going on here? We must respond in faith to God's word and God's power, specifically the power of the resurrection and the power of God's wisdom and rule coming to us through Jesus. Gentiles respond here. Those closest, the religious leaders, the Jewish leaders, they do not respond. The question is, what's my response? If I hear the word of God, if I encounter the power of God, if I'm confronted with the idea of the resurrection, do I refuse that? Do I reject that? Or do I say, I believe. Help my unbelief. God, I believe this is true. Show me what it looks like in my life. So you have an initial proclamation of the good news of Jesus here. What's our response? Now watch what happens in verse 43. In verse 43, you kind of get a parable of sorts that's thrown in here. Verse 43, 
When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless, waterless places, seeking rest, but finds none. So you have this image of an exorcism, a, a demon that's been cast out, and it goes out in the desert, but it can't find its place, and so this demon is restless. You don't know what's going to happen with the situation. Verse 44, then the demon says, I will return to my house from which I came, and when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Now, we won't ask you how many of you, your house this morning is empty, swept, and put in order, okay? So uh, uh, if it's like our house, we are incredible at cleaning 15 minutes before people show up. Like, it's amazing where stuff can hide. It's amazing how fast you can vacuum and sweep and wipe things down 15. There's just no motivation otherwise, or it's hard to find the motivation. You might be one of these people that it's always cleaning your house. God bless you if that's true uh, of your situation. But the rest of us, we clean 10 minutes, 15 minutes before you show up uh, at our house. And so Jesus is telling this story about a demon that was cast out, goes out of this house, out of this person, Everything is swept in and put into order. Uh, you think about a real estate uh, illustration here. So you're going to sell a home. You get it set up. You get it clean. You get everything emptied out. It's ready. You, the demon goes away, but nobody moves into the home. It just sits there. It sits there waiting for trouble because nothing good has come in. The bad went out. There was something happened, but nothing good came in to take its place. So what does Jesus say will happen in 45? Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits. Almost certainly the number seven there is just one of those biblical number uses of perfection or completion. This is the worst it could be. This seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first so also will it be with this generation. Here's what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees and the scribes and those who are listening. You've experienced the power of God in your midst through the ministry of Jesus. You've heard the word of God. You've seen the power of God. You've seen healings and exorcism. You've had a chance to experience this. But if you don't respond in faith, if you don't trust and follow, if something doesn't take up residence in your life, you're actually going to be worse off than when you started. A couple of illustrations maybe to make sense of this. And, and I say this first illustration so carefully because this might be part of your story in the past or you might be in the very middle of this right now. So hear me out. This is similar to a situation where someone is able to get clean of alcohol or drugs. You have an addiction and you get clean but you never develop new habits. You never develop new ways of living. You never, nothing ever comes in and fills the gap that that drug or alcohol addiction was, was taking. And so what you find out is because nothing new came in and took the place, down the road you're in a worse place than when you first started, that all of that comes back, all of that darkness, all those demons seem, seem to come back. Look at the next slide, which is kind of a quick, a quick summary here of these verses. These verses are about when God works in our life, 
when he begins to clean us out, when he begins to make us new, there is also a filling that has to happen. It's not just in following Jesus that you get rid of the bad. It's that the Spirit of God comes and takes up residence in our life. We might even say the Spirit of God comes and fills our life, and we begin to follow after him. R.T. France has a quote up here that is really important for us to hear. Half-hearted repentance without a new commitment will not last. Here's the story. God gets a hold of somebody's life. Somebody repents, somebody experiences the power of God in their life, something begins to happen there, and they begin to have this powerful spiritual experience, but then two or three days later, two or three weeks later, two or three months later, it just kind of dies to the side. It kind of just floats to the side as if nothing ever happened. What's the issue there? Usually, nothing new and good and purposeful ever came in and took hold of that person's life. So you experience a little bit of the power of God. You experience a little bit of the goodness of God. But until we reshape our minds, until we commit our lives in a new way, until we develop new habits, until we fill up our lives with new things, we're still vulnerable to all this darkness that can some, come back so quickly into our lives. And so what do we do? We commit fully to following Jesus. How do you become part of the kingdom of God? You repent, you have faith in Jesus, and you commit to follow him with your whole life. This is what kingdom living looks like. Now with that in mind, look what happens in verse 46. Jesus has already set this up, so to speak, because he talked about a generation, and then he talked about a house. Now watch what he's going to do in verse 46. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. Now this imagery of his mother and brothers, his family standing outside of the house, see that as symbolic imagery. They're not on the inside. They're not disciples of Jesus at this point. They're not believing in him and following after him. In fact, after his resurrection, they will. Many of them will. We find his brothers even writing letters that are part of the, uh, part of the New Testament. But at this point, they're on the outside, so to speak. So when you see that his mother and his brother stood outside, that's not just sitting the, setting the scene. That's a theological comment. They are outside of the house. They're outside of the family gathering at this point. What happens in the next verse? He replied to the man who told him that his mother and brothers were standing outside. He replied to this man, Who is my mother, my mother and who are my brothers? Okay. Observation number one. If you were reading out of any translation other than the King James or the New King James, there's a good chance that you cannot find verse 47 in your Bible. Uh, you look down, and it goes from 46 to 48, and so you take your Bible back to the store for a refund. I need a new one. I'm missing verse 47 in Matthew chapter 12. What's going on there? Matthew 12, verse 47 is a part of the later manuscripts that we have of the Bible. As the copies of the Bible are made in the early church, and these copies are made, 
the earliest manuscripts that we have access go from our verse 46 to verse 48. Somewhere along the line, a scribe started looking at that and saying, hmm, 48. He replied to the man who told him. I don't see any indication of a man speaking to Jesus in verse 46, so the scribe took it upon himself to add in a little comment about what that man probably said. Now, when you hear me say this, there's a part of us that can immediately panic and say, oh my goodness, we can't, we can't trust the Bible. We have a verse. Does this verse belong to the Bible? Is it not? Can I flip that over for you for just a second and say when things like this occur in Scripture, that actually increases my trust in the Word of God. And here's the reason. The reason is because we have so many manuscripts that were made of Scripture in the first several hundred years that Scripture was passed along. We don't have a religious book that's come to us that came from some secret document that was hidden away that a couple of people had access to and, and made, made translations of. We have thousands of copies that have come down. And so when something like this happens, this is not a panic moment. Oh my goodness, I wonder if I can trust the Bible. In fact, this ratchets up my trust in the Word of God because of all these manuscripts that have come to us. And because we could easily see, oh yeah, I see why that guy added in that comment. That, that makes sense to me where that came from. And so when we see something like this, uh, don't hit the panic button. Hit the, oh, that's really interesting. I'd like to know more about that button, if you could fit that on a button. So whatever that would be. Um, verse 48, he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Now, to our ears, that sounds a bit sarcastic. What's Jesus doing here? Well, he's obviously going to make a point about what it means to be a part of the family of God. So look at the next verse. Stretching out his hand, verse 49. It's so interesting that Matthew uses that comment there. Stretching out his hand is imagery in Matthew for healing or, or Jesus' power being put on someone. Stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Jesus is redefining the definition of what it means to be a part of the family of God. Who makes up the family of God? Those who have repented of sin, trusted in Jesus, and are following him. His disciples make up the family of God. Family of God is now defined by those whose lives are oriented toward Jesus. This is what it looks like to be a part of the kingdom of God. And so then in verse 50, you get this comment. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. A couple of quick observations about that verse. Whoever does the will of my Father, makes us think about that verse from the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, who by faith receives the word of God and then responds by following after him, by committing your life to him. Here's the other neat thing about this verse. Jesus said up there, that person is my brother, and sister and mother. Never miss how incredibly radical 
Jesus' approach to women is in the Gospels and what this looks like at the time that these things were being said. The way that Jesus includes women and what it means to follow him and minister and be involved in the kingdom of heaven. It matters that that little comment, sister, is in there because Jesus is saying this is for everyone. Everyone is being brought into this kingdom family. This is what this looks like right now. So, with that being the case, that's what it looks like to be a part of the kingdom of God. That's what it looks like to be a part of the family of God. How do you not become part of the family of God? If that's how you become part of family of God, through repenting, believing, committing your life to Jesus, following after him, how do you not become part of that? You guys bring up that next slide for me just real quick here. So what does not make a person part of the family of God? The first thing is your ethnic or family background. If being related to Jesus himself does not automatically get you in to the family of God, your family lineage is sure not going to do it. You say, what, what do you, what's your point here? Too often, we think, hey, you know what? I'm good with God because, man, my grandma, she was a godly lady. Like, she taught us the scripture. She was amazing. I come from a Christian background. Therefore, I'm good with God. My relationship with God is good because I have a religious family background. Or, or some of the people at this point were, were trusting their ethnic background. I'm a Jewish person, so that makes me right with God. Can I remind you, it is great that you come from a family of faith. It is great that you have a religious background, a Christian background in your family. But that in and of itself does not make you a follower of Jesus, does not make you a part of the family of God. That's a great gift, but that does not automatically make us a part of the family of God. Our religious background whether you were raised Catholic or Baptist or whatever your denomination was, whatever your background was, just because you were raised in a church like that does not automatically make us a part of the kingdom of God. Sometimes we look at our Catholic friends and we say, oh yeah, they're just trusting in being a part of the Catholic church. Well, have you ever talked to anybody who was raised Baptist? I mean, man, we are some of the worst at that. You know, I grew up in the Baptist church. I went to the Baptist church. Therefore, that makes me right with God. That's not what it means to be a part of the family of God. Again, it's great that you were raised in a situation where you learned about the Bible stories and you were exposed to church, but that is not what it means to follow Jesus and be a part of the family of God. Just because you adhere to the rules, just because you keep all the religious rules, that's not a good enough. Just because you had a previous spiritual experience of some kind, we just learned from that previous parable, that's not what makes us a part of the kingdom of God. It's when I repent of sins, trust in Jesus, and focus my life to him, follow after him, commit to him. Now, if that's the case, let's talk about the family of God situation here for a minute. What does it look like to be a part of the family of God? How do we talk about kingdom family? Here's the first thing. Kingdom family is built on allegiance to Jesus. Above everything else, Jesus puts his hands out toward his disciples and said, these are my mother and my sister and my brother. Allegiance to Jesus makes us part of the family of God. Number two, in the kingdom family, we prioritize kingdom family over biological family. Jesus will come along 
And he will tell people, your allegiance to me is even more important than your allegiance to our, your family. That's hard to hear in 2019. We can't even imagine how hard that was to hear in 30 AD when family really was everything. And Jesus is saying, your primary allegiance is as a follower of me, that your faith is in me, not in your family identity. Number three, that the kingdom family is a wide and diverse family. Jesus brings disciples from all kinds of occupations and background. Jesus brings disciples who are men and women, who are children and adults, who are Jews and Gentiles, who are sinners and tax collectors. When Jesus talks about family, he doesn't keep it in tight. He goes really wide and really diverse about who makes up the family of God. So when we talk about kingdom family, we need to have in mind not just a group of people that look like us or that we like to be around. This is a wide group of people who have committed their life to Jesus Christ, who have been transformed through his salvation. It goes wide, but that does not lead to dishonor or neglect of biological family or to rejection of God's created order. I don't want you to hear anything that I've said this morning and think, well, that means that Jesus just wants to blow up the concept of family and we can do whatever we want. That's not what you see in the ministry of Jesus. In the ministry and teaching of Jesus, he upholds the dignity of marriage. He upholds the blessing of children. He says that we are to care for our parents to the point that the Pharisees tried to use religious rules so they didn't have to send their parents to a good assisted living center. They could just kind of make their parents figure it out on their own. He says you can't use religious rules to do that. You're going to care for your parents. And parents, you're going to care for your kids. Jesus cared for his mother even when he was on the cross. Jesus redefines the concept of kingdom family around himself but that in and of itself doesn't blow up the idea of biological family and what it means that God gives us the gift of family. So here's what we have to do now. How do I take the idea of family? How do I take what you saw up here on stage that we say is a very good thing, and we're going to celebrate that, and we're going to do everything in the years to come to reach out to families in our area. How do we take that and connect it to the idea of the kingdom of God? So what's the kingdom connection between being a follower of Jesus and understanding what it means to be a part of a family? You guys, uh, oh, there it is, perfect. Kingdom connection. Number one, family is a great gift, but a terrible God. This idea that Jesus redefines family around himself, I hope it's liberating to you. I hope it's freeing to you, because what this means is we don't have to live with this burden of my family has to be perfect, or my family has to look perfect, or my family has to act perfect, because our primary identity, our primary hope is not found in having a perfect family that looks great on Instagram and everyone else respects and thinks that we're great. That's not the burden that we carry. Family is a great gift, and we're not saying anything negative about that. But family as a God will rule your life in a way that you never want to go down that road. So we receive family, God, this is good, 
but we don't put family, family values above the gospel of Jesus Christ. We get those things in the right order. And when we do get them in the right order, we begin to see marriage and parenting as pictures of the gospel, as pictures of the Christian life. So marriage is not just something we do because other people do it. We are committed as Christians to marriage, to make this work because it's a picture of the gospel to the world around us. Is it easy? No, it's not. Are there challenges all the time? But we see marriage not just as a social construct, we see it as a picture of the gospel, a picture that we're showing to the world around us. And we don't parent just so our kids will be good citizens and not embarrass us. We parent because it's disciple-making, because we want to see these kids come to know and worship Jesus and live for him with everything that they have. And so it takes these ideas of marriage and parenting and it transforms them in ways that can never be the case if our lives were not following Jesus. Number three, family, when we connect it to the kingdom, is inclusive. This is why we run after adoption and foster care. Because let's be honest, people could see something like adoption and foster care and they could say, don't do that that might mess up your family. Guess what? We are already messed up, all right? We're already messed up on our own. Plenty messed up on our own. But it's this idea of, oh, don't do that because now your family won't have the same image or everything's not gonna be as easy as it was before. But that's not how we make decisions as followers of Jesus. The family of God is so wide that if we have an opportunity to run down the path of adoption or foster care, we do because we don't have this burden to protect the idea of a perfect family because that's not our God to begin with. And the idea of hospitality, I don't need my home to look good to make me look good. My home is a gift from God as a mission base. So my doors are wide open. We want to practice hospitality because this home that we've been given is a part of seeing the gospel spread, not a part of making us look good. Family is Christ-centered, it's gospel-focused, and then church is family. This is that beautiful part of the New Testament. You may be here this morning, and your family situation is not good. You're embarrassed by it, you're frustrated by it, you don't know what to do about your family situation, and you feel that burden, Or maybe family is just not developed the way that you expected it to. You thought this would happen and your family situation has gone a completely different direction. Can I tell you that God has not forgotten you? That God has not stopped being at work in your life? That one of the gifts of following Jesus is that when we follow him, we're not only following him, but he brings us in with others who follow him. He brings us in as part of the church. And so the gift of the church, hear me out on this, the gift of the church is not that we are a group made up of families, because we're not. We are a family. This is not just a random collection of families. This is family. We are in this together, loving one another, caring for one another, because our hope is found in Jesus. When we think about this idea of how family impacts the power of the gospel, parents, let me encourage you with something. Hold on to the idea that for your kids, home is where their story begins, not where it should end. Home is where their story begins. See your home as a launching pad 
See your home as a training ground. This is something that my parents did so, so well for us, where you create a home that says, this is a place that I want to be, but it's not a place I have to stay. I love to go home. I love the security and the stability of home, but I don't create that so my kids will just stay here. I create that so that they will have the gift of knowing the goodness of God, and then they'll be propelled to go wherever God sends them. I don't spend my time trying to hold on to my home, hold on to my family. I spend my time holding my hands out before God, saying, God, this is for you. Send them wherever they will go. And so when home is a launching pad, it changes everything for how your family operates. Family is a good gift from a good God, but it itself is never meant to be God. Jesus is better than anything this world could provide, including family. Look at this verse in Matthew chapter 19. We'll get to it later in the study. Jesus says, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields because of my name will receive a hundred times more and will inherit eternal life. Here in just a minute, I'm going to pray for us. And after I pray for us, we are going to sing together the song, Jesus is Better. That Jesus is better than anything that we encounter, good or bad, in this world. He is better. He is our focus. As we sing that song, we pass around our offering plates. If you need someone to pray with you, this is your chance to put that card in there. If you're a guest, this is your chance to put that card in there. Also, hear me out on this. As we've seen, we are up here at the front to pray for you. We would love to pray for your family. You may even want to gather with your family, not singing during this time, but you just gather together to pray together during this time. Whatever it is that God's doing in your life, we want you to take advantage of that. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to sing that song together. Father, thank you for what we've experienced this morning. God, thank you for these families for these little kids that were on stage. God, thank you that this is a church that loves and supports and celebrates the gift of family. God, I pray, God, I pray in the future that you would bring so many families, so many kids to us. God, that it would force us into making important decisions about how we operate and the facilities we have. God, bring families to us. Not because we just want to be a church that has a lot of families. God, do that because we want to see these kids know the good news of Jesus and become followers of Jesus. God, I pray for those who are here this morning who maybe their family situation is really bad or really hard. God, those who might be dealing with a desire for children and that desire has not happened, a desire for marriage and that desire has not happened, God, I pray that the idea of kingdom family would not just feel like a second option, but God, would be an incredible act of your grace in their life this morning. God, let them know your goodness. Let them know your presence with them. God, bring Emmaus together as a family. We exist to proclaim and display Jesus. More than anything, more than anything, God, we want to show the world around us that Jesus is better. Let us proclaim that together right now. In Jesus' name, amen.